When a mother loves her child, everything feels safe. But what happens when she doesn't? Welcome to the Embarrassing Diary. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of The Embarrassing Diary. In today's episode, I have the great pleasure to have an amazing and super talented singer, actress, lecturer and author of the book Chameleon Flican, or in the English version, Butterfly. And she will analyze her story through her childhood eyes and she will tell us a little bit more about how she experienced growing up in a highly dysfunctional family. And before we say anything, trigger warning. We are going to analyze some very sensitive topics such as self-harm, eating disorders, being in abusive relationships. So please, 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 if you feel triggered by any of those topics, seek professional help. But in any case, if you're not, I hope it will mean something to you as it meant for my guest today. So without further ado, let's welcome to the conversation, Erika. Dietmer. Hello, Erica. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's really a pleasure to have you here today. I'm so thrilled that you're here with us. Uh, first of all, can you give us a little bit of a background? Well, I'm Swedish by birth. I was born in Stockholm and I was born into a family with addiction problems and all sorts of dysfunctional issues. So one of the strategies that I had to survive was to create an English alter ego. So I created this happy world bubble where all my imaginary friends were English. I was English. Everything was always lovely in that imaginary world. And obviously in the beginning, when I was tiny, I didn't speak English. It's not my first language. So I sounded pretty much like the Swedish chef, I think, on The Muppet Show, for those of you who are old enough to know that. <laughs> But in English, you know, I sort of mimicked what I thought was English words and the melody. And then little by little, I added proper English words into that melody. So by the time I was eight or nine years old, I was fluent, self-taught and fluent in English. So this sort of alternative Erica, the English version of myself, has always been a very strong part of me. But I guess because it was a survival technique as well, it was almost as if I pushed that exterior. It was almost as if I thought that if, I, if I'm only in that English bubble, then all the horribleness that I was experiencing and feeling wouldn't catch up with me. So fast forward, I'm now 51, but it took me until I was way over 30 before I started to realize that I had to somehow get help in merging all of these different facets of me. And it's not as if I was delusional. I knew that I was a Swedish Erica too, but I just wasn't, I wasn't ready to be her, to embody all that she had and what she carried and what she stood for, as it were. Um, so, yeah. well, yeah, that's a little bit about me, apart from all the professional yeah. aspects. And yeah. 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 Actually, in the book, uh, you're describing this unhealthy environment. From the beginning, I felt. Uh, for me, it was very harsh to read it because I'm a mother myself. Wow. So I could understand, like, from a kid's perspective, oh, that's actually harsh. Mm -hmm. um, if you want, I can read a small part of it that you mentioned, if you're okay with that, yes, of course. I have the English version. Um, and it's um, you talk about your mother being um, inside of a, a large sphere. So I'm going to yeah. read it. Um, mother is inside a large sphere made out of jello. She's drunk or high or both. She has that sexy smirk on her face, just like when the men are visiting. 
I am outside the sphere. She doesn't see me. She never sees me. I want her to see me, to admit that I exist, that I mean something to her. Get some kind of indication that she cares about me, that she's proud of me, happy that she decided to keep me and not abort me all that time ago. Time after time, I tried to get her to see me, to hear me, to step out of the jealous fear and be real. I want her to look at me, to hear me, listen to me, talk to me, without the intoxication, without the men as an audience. But the more I tried to reach her, to get inside the sphere, or find a hole, to pull her out of it, the more intoxicated she gets, the more she, hilarious she finds it, in all. Then the sudden flash, the deep realization that I'm the only one that laughs at, that it is my panic and terror that amuse her, that she enjoys seeing me this way, that she loves to see me lonely and powerless, that seeing me that way gives her strength, that she doesn't love me, never has, that in fact she hates me. Mm. Oh my God, when I read that, I I was very, I was surprised. I was really, and I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert. I'm, I, I don't know a lot of things about mental health from an expert opinion, but as, a, as another human being, I would like to apologize for what you went through because that's something that nobody needs to go through. Um, mm. How how did you write that? Is it something that I'm 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 I'm, I'm guessing it really happened? But how did you write the book? Yeah, tell me a little well, bit about the book. That particular excerpt that you read, thank you for reading it as well. Was a dream. It was a dream that I had for every night for about six months. And later on, about two years afterwards, I happened to meet at a, at a social event, I happened to meet a dream interpreter. She's written several books on the topic. And I happened to be alone with her uh, during one moment. And I said, you know, a few years ago, I had this very horrible dream that woke me up every morning in palpitations and sweats. And um, then it just stopped. And she looked at me. And I didn't tell her what the dream was. I didn't say anything more than that, but I guess she could read between the lines. And she said, well, more, most likely, she said, without knowing anything else, but what you're saying now, you managed to, to solve the issue that your psyche is trying mm. to deal with yourself. But because you didn't have help, it took six months for, for you to sort of live through that and come to terms with all of those feelings but yes it was a very stark realization to realize that oh the person that is meant to nourish you actually wants you dead <laughs> you know it's it's yeah. it's a very it's it's yeah it's you can't even attempt to feel it and i know it's not entirely true i think she was very conflicted she had me when she was very young she met my dad, they fell in love, he was older. Um, they obviously had sex because I was conceived, and but that was never part of the plan, you know. And he didn't, he comes from a sort of semi-religious home. He didn't want to go through with an abortion, but sort of persuaded my very unwilling mother to become a mother. And then when she had, when it was too late to abort, he sort of, you know, not left her, but he he did. He abandoned her with the pregnancy. He just thought, well, I'm older. I need to do my thing now. She has her time later. But she felt mm. angry with him. And then, of course, that anger was projected onto me as well. Do you see what I mean? So I was sort of to blame for everything bad that happened. But in her defense, yeah. and I think this comes with age and the fact that I pulled off so many layers and have healed so much, she was abused as a child. 
my mm. my maternal grandmother was when she when she passed i was sort of relieved uh, my oldest uncle who died last year he was handed to the social services by my maternal grandmother by his mother because he was too you know she didn't like him he was then too mm. like you know, a two-year-old. And she just he, she basically went to the doctors and said, he's an evil child. Can you, you know, kill him? Just like you put down a dog, mm. right? There's something wrong with this dog. Can we, you know, kill it? And this doctor was shocked. There were medical records from this. And the doctor was shocked and said, that's not how it works. Well, in that case, you know, I want to give him up for adoption or just put him away somewhere and throw away the key. So he was put in an orphanage and that it's unfortunately, wow, what a life story he has um, or had. That orphanage later became in Sweden infamous because it was all the children that were there were physically and sexually abused pretty much on a daily basis. So that was my uncle. So, and of course, my mother was only a few years. She was what, four when this happened, three, four, five. And my uncle was three, I think. Um, can you imagine the terror that must have put in her? She has no reason why her brother is suddenly not there anymore. It was never talked about. I think it was a lie in the beginning that he was, you know, too difficult to handle. So someone else was looking after yeah. him like another family. But can you imagine what that yeah. will do to someone who knows too that, oh, my mother isn't, she doesn't love any of us. Why, why did she pick my brother to, why did she get rid of my brother and not me? Oh, I better... You know, I better not say anything, obviously, because otherwise I'll me too, I will be left. So that's her baggage. It was tough because she never dealt with it. She's tried to self-heal through alcohol and drugs. And that's never a great solution. It doesn't really solve anything. So when I came along and then my biological father abandoned her with this baby that she didn't want, you know, of course, that's not the basis for. In an ideal fairy tale world, that would have been her wake-up call to get her out in gear. Yeah. But it wasn't, you know, and that's how yeah. it is. So the book came about, I actually started writing it way back in 2007. And at mm -hmm. this point, I have lived in England for a very long time. And I've been in an abusive relationship, and which, you know, I guess was an extension of my mother and the fact that I wasn't healed, so I was beating myself up. So he only became like an external partner who continued that beating myself up. Um, so I had left him. I was, I had sworn I would never be in another relationship, that I would be a nun. <laughs> uh, it, that, has, that has changed, yeah. but it took a while. But I, that, <laughs> that I would become a nun, that I would never be with a man ever again. It was safer that way. And I thought, I... I'm now ready to embrace my Swedishness. So I, I planned to move back home to Sweden. And lo and behold, this Portuguese, French, American production company, I had managed to be home in Stockholm for about two months when they phoned me up and said, oh, you know what? We have this huge Cirque show in, um, in Portugal. And we, ha we have our opening night in a week. And the lead singer, we had to fire her because she was too fat. Uh, <laughs> Oh, oh we God. found you. So could you come on a plane now, please? And I just thought this must be a joke. Uh, and I said to this producer, I said, well, define what you mean by 
firing somebody for being fat? You know, what was her size? Oh, she was, you know, she was bigger than you. And I'm like, no, you know, I'm I'm fairly normal built, you know. So in musical theater slash theater world, I'm on the bigger side because in the film world and on stage, it's it's notorious for having very a lot of people that are suffering from eating disorders and that are quite small. Um, mm. And he said, oh, I'm sure you'll be fine. You, you have to fit into the dresses. And I thought, oh, okay, here we go. So I got the measurements and yeah, they would fit. And I checked them out and they were completely legit. legit. So I, I laughed and I said, well, okay, so much for my Swedish return. Uh, so at the okay. 2007, I packed my bags for a nine nine month contract uh, as a circ, as a lead singer in a circ show in Portugal, just outside of Lisbon. And whilst I was there, I woke up one morning and I had three, two or three chapters in my head. Like ready. Mm-hmm. I, I, it was almost as if I could see the text on a piece of paper. And it, it was such a strong epiphany. Yeah, yeah. That I just I opened up my my laptop that I had and I just it was almost as if I took dictation. So I typed as fast as I could and then continued. So in the beginning, I wrote in English and it was called Butterfly, which is the same title as it is now, because it's still that the embryo was born there. Since mm-hmm. then it has morphed into because after that stint in Portugal, I did move back to Sweden and I realized that underneath all of the having had an autoimmune illness and having had that baggage from the abusive man and everything was also a very deeply set eating disorder and self-harm. Because self-harm, when we say self-harm, most people think of cutting yourself, right? But self-harm is is broader than that. Self-harm is also putting yourself in dangerous situations. Check that. Being in abusive relationships. Check that. You know, not caring if you eat dangerous food because if you get sick or perhaps die, it's only a bonus, right? So I did all of that. Oh, as oh wow. So you could argue that, you know, me taking nightly walks at 3 a.m. in a notoriously dangerous area in London is part of that psychological mm-hmm. makeup, coupled with having a very severe eating disorder that was already developed by the time I started school at the age of six. So when 2008 hit, I suddenly realized that I can't, I can't go on existing like this. I don't live, you know, I, don't, I I try to function in my life and it doesn't function, you know, this food monster, another entity that I had created. I couldn't keep that entity at bay. You know, it left me alone temporarily when it felt like, oh, you know, I it's not here anymore, hallelujah. And then of course, boom, it'd be there. So I was almost chained to this imaginary monster that possessed me at times. So I sought help and I was accepted into this uh, clinic in Stockholm, a four-month, very intense clinic uh, and sort of rehab, as it were. And then during those four months, I also had one-on-one coaching and she said, you know, four months won't be enough for you. You will need to find a therapist and continue your healing. So, yeah, so I did. But then when I started working with my my therapist after the clinic, she and I started to unravel this whole English entity and the fact that I had written English and felt almost more comfortable communicating with people in English rather than Swedish. And little by little, we peeled off that layer so that I could integrate 
the Swedish person and also start integrating the food monster. So I took yeah. up writing again because the writing had been dormant. I'd, I'd hit a point where I, I didn't know how to move forward. And I have friends that work in the, in the book industry. And I, 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 spoke to, I spoke to them about it. And after a while, she said to me, well, you know, because I said, I'm not, this book isn't finished yet. I know that it, it will be finished and I want it finished. I don't know yet whether I want it published. So I don't want to speak to publishing companies yet. I want mm -hmm. to wrap it up. I want to be proud of something and I want to be able to say, yes, I completed that. You know, I closed this chapter and the book. So I could help mm -hmm. from a, I mean, you can hire privately um, people that were like almost like editorial managers. So I hired somebody and I met with him three times. And because I thought, you know, oh my goodness, I have such a long way before it's completed. And it wasn't. We only met. We were together for four months. I met him three times and I had tasks in between meeting. And after the third session, it took me another two weeks and then I was done. And then I, and that was in 2019. Uh, so well, 2019, early 2020. So just when uh, the pandemic and everything started. Uh, so it's like, a little bit of um, of uh, a transformational um, the whole the journey to write the book was also your transformation through healing, right? So it, it took quite some time. It did to it do, get there, and then there were so many things. Yeah. I also had to sit on the complete work for quite a while bef before I, because in the beginning I just thought. Well, I don't want to publish it because I don't want it to be, a, oh, here you go. Oh, you're treating me so badly when I was little, so now you're going to get it back. <laughs> mm -hmm. I didn't want it to come from that point of view. Like I wanted to be free of any, any kind of negative, not negative feedback, because you can always get negative feedback. I didn't want it to be an act of childishness. Yeah, from a small place. Yeah. So I sat on it and I talked to my husband and I talked to a few of my best friends and they read it and they were like you. They just said, oh my God, I didn't realize that it was even at this extent. You've hidden so much for us as well. Mm. And I said, well, I did because I didn't even know that I was hiding it. So I was hiding it from everyone, myself included. And um, mm. then I started talking to... My husband, at the time, he worked for a company that works with NGOs. So I, I started talking to a, a woman who worked at that company as well. And mm -hmm. we started talking about the fact that I've written this in my background. And she said, well, have you, ever, have you ever considered maybe publishing the book and doing it as a, that you can, you can support this or that NGO? Like, I'm happy to put you in touch with the people there. And suddenly, there was another reason for having written this book. Do you know what I mean? It suddenly wasn't just yeah. about me. It was more a case of, oh, wow, of course, that is it. You know, this is my luggage. I have dropped it. It's healed. But the experience, I can draw on that experience and show others how, yeah. how to move yeah. forward, what worked for me, try this, you know. what. So that's been my, that, that was a, a, human, a major turning point for me. And what was the, after you published it, you published it, how was it from the audience perspective and from your family perspective, if they reached you, if you want to share? Yeah, yeah, course. yeah. Thank you. Um, well, lots of good questions. I, I'm not in touch with my mother. She's still alive. 
uh, I'm quite amazed at the fact that her body is still functioning, but it is. And my youngest uncle, who is her half brother and way younger than my mother, she he he's he's such a diplomat. He keeps in touch with everyone. He's like a spider in the net. So he he reports back to me from time to time and says, "Yeah, no, she is still. You know, I mean, she's she's not in great health, but she's still around." So we're not in touch. Um, for lots of different reasons, but she's toxic. So I can't really have her in my life because it just pulls everything. It it just distorts everything in my life. So we're not in touch at all. So I had no issues with publishing the book from her point of view. And also everyone in the book is anonymized. So there are no names at all. The only name that is displayed is mine. And because I'm married, uh, my surname is no longer what it used to be. So there's no way to connect me to my mother or my father or my brother unless you know who he who they are. Yeah. So, and that's not the point either. No. Well, like as an I, as a reader, I don't care who they are, you know. But I understand what you're saying. You're you're very kind to conceal their anonymity because you also did not try to point out fingers. You were trying to talk about your story, share it with the world and help others heal from similar situations. Yeah. Th- that, that's the yeah, point there, that's right? Exactly so. And it, that that was very important to me and it still is, actually. Um, so, yeah, from mm. my mother's point of view, I was like, mm, no, that's not so important. But my father, my biological father, I was a bit like, oh, he's not okay. on social media, but he has siblings. He has a lot of siblings. And they're all on social media and we're, you know, friends on Facebook. So I thought, oh my God, I don't want, I don't want him to find out from one of his siblings or friends that I've written an autobiography and tell him about it. I I have to tell him before it's published. So here's the interesting thing about my father. This is quite funny, actually. He he now he knows about this book. So I warned him that I said to him, Oh, you know, just to let you know that I'm I've written a book, it's an autobiography, and it supports this Swedish NGO, and uh, yeah, it's it's going to come out, you know. And I said, oh, well, you know, so so when is it coming out? And I said, oh, later on in the year, in June, and he said, oh, I, I should read it then. I said, well, you don't, and I was completely honest here, and I said to him, you know what, you don't actually have to read it. I just want you to know that it's coming out, so that if you hear from it from one of your siblings, then you know about it. You don't feel like stamped in the back but I said but honestly I really don't want you to read it because I think it will stir up a lot of stuff in you as well yeah. and he's like oh right, right, right. I see well mm, no of course I want to read it you've written it and he still hasn't because he keeps forgetting about the book so he's reminded at times from friends and siblings and my daughter my eldest daughter she's a bit cheeky so she goes oh you know that 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 photograph that you have in your bedroom is the same photograph that my mother has on the cover of her book. <laughs> and I'm like, do you have? Oh, wow. She's so cheeky. And he goes, so he's been reminded of this several times. Um, and the last time he he was reminded, he looked at me and he said, well, you know, I'm still waiting for you to give me a book. And I said, mm-hmm. and I looked at him and I thought, you cheeky bugger. And I said, you know what? I actually think that you could buy one. If you're really interested in reading it, then it's not for me to give you a copy. 
you know, this is hard earned. Yeah. <laughs> All of the words on those pages are hard earned. You can afford to buy your yeah. copy. And he's like, <laughs> oh, oh, yes. And he's forgotten about it again. So he won't read it. My mother found out about the book by accident because I was interviewed in my local, in my, I live outside yeah. Stockholm, I was interviewed by the local newspaper here and big spread. And after the interview was done, uh, the journalist phoned me up and she said, oh, we've run the editorial you know, meeting this week about the articles coming out next week. And I was reminded of the fact that because your mother isn't dead, we need to get her input. She needs to be allowed to be heard. It's a legal thing. You can be sued if, if you don't as a newspaper. And instantly that was that put the fear of God in me. I was, I had a minor panic attack. And I, I, mm -hmm. because, so she said, do you have any contact details for her? And I said, well, I know where she lives and I know her surname because she's also married. So, and she thought, okay, well, that will help. Um, so I said, well, can you promise me that you'll get back to me after you've spoken to her? And see what, and tell me what she says or what she said. And she said, yes, absolutely. So she did. The journalist came back to me and she said, well, it took a while before I got hold of her. I had to leave a few messages, but I did speak to her in the end. And she was very, I can sort of see what she said, but she was, it was very, it wasn't dramatic at all, but she was very sarcastic and quite harsh. And she'd said something along the lines of, yes, I can, I can confirm that I'm Erica's mother. Yes, I can just imagine what type of book she would write. And no, I have no further comments. So that was her. Oh, wow. That was her input. But of course, since then, it must have, mm. she listens to audiobooks. And I have read, I'm the voice for the Swedish audiobook. Um, yeah. so she has listened to it because my brother, another different story, God. Uh, my younger brother, he contacted me a couple of year, a year and a half ago or so on Messenger because we're not in touch either. And he bombarded me with very threatening and hateful comments. But comments that made me understand that not only has my mother listened to the audiobook, but my brother has listened to the audiobook, which after I had sort of integrated all of the feelings of him contacting me in such a horrible way, it was sort of bittersweet. Uh, that they yeah. had listened to my voice <laughs> recounting a yeah. story that they don't want to hear. None of them want to want to listen yeah. to. So yeah, so that that so much for my for my immediate family. When it comes, wow. And and the audience did they, did how did they perceive uh, your book? Am, as far as I'm aware, I have only received positive comments from it um mainly along the lines of people that know me socially have been surprised because obviously I've always had a very happy uh area because mm -hmm. that was very important to me to have a very happy and and good facade uh, pretending that all the darkness didn't exist and some a lady that I know she bought seven books and and had it in uh, as part of her book club at work so, yeah which oh, wow. was amazing to me and then the Swedish NGO that the book is supporting they support the book they read huge excerpts of the book and said mm, we are reminded of stories that they hear that they come across unfortunately yeah. on a weekly basis so they said you know your book is still relevant and very important and um, so only positive feedback really some of 
shocked. Yeah. You know, yeah. For, for, for a reader or a listener that listens to the audiobook is is new. And I think to a certain degree, we all have we all have experiences in our lives that were less than ideal. You know, it could be your upbringing, but it could also be that you were perhaps sexually abused or, or, you know, we all have those experiences or we know someone close to us that had that experience. Why, why I think it's important to talk about again is because I, I I had the experience of, of trying to make it into separate entities and sort of push it out of my psyche but I think, you know, that was a survival strategy when things were too intense. But ultimately, I think the opposite needs to be done. We need to integrate everything that happens to us mm-hmm. because there it, I don't want to say that it's, it happens for a reason because it sounds so lofty and cliche. Yeah. It, it's for me, for instance, when I say that I was, you know, in an abusive relationship with a man for over five years. People are, what? Why? Oh, how horrible. I'm like, I know it was, but I can see it so clearly now. You know, the upbringing laid the foundation for that controlling that took place because I had no sense of self. I had no sense of who I was and what my sane and healthy reactions were. They were eradicated. So it's only when you start sort of assimilating all of that baggage into your psyche that you can heal. Because we're all perpetrators. Yeah. If we don't heal, we become perpetrators in one or another. Yeah. And going back to a full circle now come and coming back to the mm-hmm. now, when did the healing process started? How did it start? And what was the impact also of your partner? Because you talk about him, your husband. He's very sweet, very supportive. Uh, I would even say he's therapeutic <laughs> to you. Yeah. So how did you start healing um yeah tell me a little bit about this process thank you well um i almost see it like i'm an egg that started to have like a crack in the facade and the initial crack in the facade came in 2004 and i was out working as a lead singer on on a cruise ship you know cruise ships have entertainment on board and i was the lead singer in the musical theater team and there were Mm -hmm. swedish people in that team as well quite a big team but the the Swedes that I hang out with were, were Swedes that were similar to me, i.e. they lived in London, they spoke English like I did, and they weren't particularly Swedish. Because remember, at this point, I was still sort of ashamed of my Swedishness. I wanted to be a Londoner. I was a Londoner. Everything was England, England, England. I was a complete Anglophile. But what happened mm-hmm. during this cruise was that at this point, I was officially engaged to this abusive man who was still at home in London, but I was on, I was away. And little by little, every time I was away from this man, I started to become more like myself and started to enjoy just social activities, going for coffee with big people, enjoying being on stage and whatever. And there was this Swedish guy on board the ship. He was quite good looking, uh, but I didn't really see that because he was Swedish. Hello. the Another girl who worked in the entertainment team, she was the hostess for all the Scandinavians on board the ship because a lot of guests were, were, were Scandinavians. And she once said to me, she said, oh, why don't you come over? You know, this guy, he, he's a, he has a very old but very funny Swedish film on his computer and we've decided to just have a, a film night in his cabin. Do you want to come? And normally I would say no 
right, out of pure instinct, like, no, you're Swedish, hello. But this film is such a classic. And I remember the first time I saw it. So it was the film that made me go, oh, that'd be fun to see, actually. So I said yes. And I hung out in the cabin. And suddenly, you know, the guy whose cabin it was and whose film it was, he was he was quite nice, you know. Oh, okay, just a normal, regular guy. And that was the starting point, because little by little, he sort of befriended me in a very soft, way mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. eventually I didn't realize that I was falling in falling in love with him he knew but I mm-hmm. didn't and also I was engaged remember to this guy in England so yeah but the our first hug our first romantic thing that happened it blew my mind because I have I was 30 at that point, 30 or 31. And up until that point, I was convinced that I couldn't feel, that I wasn't, that I was asexual, that I just didn't have, you know, any kind of, that I couldn't feel any physical sensations because I'd had boyfriends and I wasn't a virgin, but I'd never felt anything. So I just assumed that all of that fairy tale, wow, it feels amazing when he hugs me, it wasn't for me. And suddenly... When this guy hugged me, it was like fireworks. So that was, it was so many different shocks at the same time. It was fireworks when he touched me, which real, which made me go, I'm not asexual. I've only been with the wrong guys. And I'm currently engaged to someone who obviously also is a wrong, you know, it was so many realizations all at once. So he... He set the bar. He was a nice, regular guy. We didn't have anything much more in common apart from the little social bubble that exists on a cruise ship. But I'm forever grateful for having met him. And for for me, he was definitely the catalyst that catapulted me into healing. Because what, what happened then, and I'm sure they are connected, even though at the time when my autoimmune illness broke through, when it developed, it only happened like two weeks after I had become lovers with this Swedish guy on board the ship. I then saw it as a punishment for having done something wrong, right? Because I was unfaithful to my fiance in London. Uh, Today, I think I wasn't punished. It was another part of the healing puzzle because that autoimmune illness, it forced me to take a look at my life in, in in a way that I hadn't done at that point. And I also think that last final bit, that the romantic, the, the beautiful feelings that suddenly had started to emerge, that was that was the, the the last thing that broke the camel's back because it was just my body was full of so much tension, of so much stress and so much tension that even though it was a lovely feeling to experience that I'm not asexual, I can feel <laughs> it feels good yeah. when the right person touches me and, and hugs me. For my body, it was just too much. So from then on, so I would say that that healing healing was kickstarted in 2004. Um, And around the end of late 2007, 2008, I had had dealt with the autoimmune illness and I was on medication at that point and I was sort of back to being able to move and whatever. But three years later, that's when I realized that the autoimmune illness was only the tip of the iceberg that the self-harm and the eating disorder was a major knot that I had yet to unravel. And that started with applying to this clinic, doing that program, and then continuing to work after that program with my therapist one-on-one. It's very 
interesting what you're saying about the guy in the boat. I think it was interesting that you, it was almost like a portal. He opened yeah. the portal to your sen- the sensitive part of your soul that you probably might haven't experienced up until then. It doesn't matter if you have been in a dysfunctional family, even if you're in a normal family, it takes some time to meet someone who can create all those feelings on you. And that portal was still open. And then you met your partner, yeah. your husband, and that portal was still there. So it's beautiful to see. It is. Um, it actually makes me teary-eyed because... Yeah, I yeah, see. I still... This is... That that to me was a a huge moment of grace. You know, sometimes we have yeah. luck in our lives, and other other times we can create things and manifest ourselves through changing our thoughts and behavior. But this was a moment of grace for me mm. when I did take that plunge, and I realized that yes, the portal was open, and he was another pair of correct arms to be in. We haven't really been apart since. <laughs> so, yeah. So. Yeah. It was definitely right, for sure. And he's, he's such a great person. I really love him. I'm, I'm really happy that we're finishing this conversation in a, in a positive note because I don't want people to just get on the, on the negative part. It's definitely something that uh, a lot of people have experienced. As you said, it's still a relatable topic that people talk about it to this day. Um, I like that you're talking about your healing journey. I like that you're emotional about it and you're vulnerable about it because it doesn't mean that we we have to show this person of, I'm strong, nothing beats me, I won. I, like, we are humans. It's okay to be to be vulnerable yeah. right now. Um, so closing this beautiful um, uh, conversation that we had, I wanted to ask you if you're planning to write another book, um, what are your projects right now, what do you have in mind? Hey, I will be writing another book but I don't know when it's going to come out and it's not Mm -hmm. really defined yet. I have, it's, yeah, it's floating in my psyche, but I'm not, I'm not prepared to to say what that floaty cloud is just yet because it's still a little bit too loose, but yeah, there are more books in my system that will be, they will be born one day. Um, But up until then I am, I work, I still work as an actress and a singer. I've come back to that. I've also healed from my autoimmune illness, which is amazing. So I'm no longer on medication or anything like that, which is great. Um, so I work as a lecturer. So I lecture with a book. I also lecture for a Swedish organization that you know talks about and supports people that are suffering from self-harm and eating disorders, but also families, you know, so that you can be the best support that you can be for those who suffer. And I do, I also teach, I, I work with actors and managers and management teams and help them with presentations, presentations online and presentations in the physical room and being better at getting up and talking. And especially when it comes to not having English as your first language, there are, you know, there are difficulties that we stumble across and if you're not aware of those difficulties and where you stumble you can sometimes lose an audience and be made fun of behind your back and so I help I help management teams sort of catch all of that and 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 integrate and, and make better nice nice i'll definitely i think i would benefit from uh your presentation uh, skills class because when i started doing the podcast google was saying do you want to improve your vocabulary and i'm like is what i 
vocabulary bad? What is, what is Google trying to tell me right now? <laughs> but definitely, I want to thank you for today. I had a really a good time uh, talking to you. I think that it's a very important topic that we covered today. And I really hope to see you soon again. Thank you show. very much. And thank you for having me. It's been great. Thank you. If you are still here, if you're until the end of this episode, thank you so much for being here. If you want to show your love, you can simply subscribe to this channel. And of course, make sure to follow us on Instagram and share this episode with someone you really love, you really care, and you think it will make an impact uh, to them or to the world. Now, thanks so much for being here and see you next time.